Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Clement Pointelart, Executive Director at Verlinvest. Verlinvest is an international evergreen investment company with over $2 billion in assets under management, backed by families who have built together some of the world's largest consumer brands. Their portfolio includes Oatly, Who Gives a Crap, Vita Coco, and Hint. Clement leads the Verlevest US office and is part of the consumer products and retail practice. On this episode, we discuss consumer products. On this episode, we discuss consumer brands and consumer products, how Clement thinks about brand equity, if product differentiation really does matter, and how he evaluates grocery distribution strategy. Without further ado, here's Clement. Clement, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Oh, really excited. Really excited to have you on the show. Thanks again for for taking the time. So what was your initial attraction and why did you get involved in consumer investing? Well, first, I think I've always been fascinated by the sector. You know, as a as a kid or growing up, when people would invite me to dinner, I, you know, first thing I would do was go to the kitchen, open the fridge. Look at the closets, you know, understand why they had picked a brand over another one, etc. And, you know, ask, ask questions. It drives my kids crazy. But today in New York City, uh, when I walk in the street, I look at the garbage bags and I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. What kind of beverage like people actually buy, etc., etc. And I'm so proud when I you know, see one of our brands uh, packaging in one of the trash cans. Uh, so... And again, my, my kids think I'm crazy. Maybe I am. That's first of all, I think it's the passion. On top of that, you know, I feel that more and more there is a massive link between consumption and the identity that I find really fascinating. In some ways, I would say that consuming is the new religion. You know, whether you're vegan, keto, non-GMO, etc. Like people define themselves with the kind of diets or, or habits they follow. And so as a result, I think that being a consumer investor allows you to be at the center of you know, many of society's challenges and questions. Uh, and, and then the last point is that, you know, for me, consumer investing allows me to have fun you know, on a daily basis. At, at very best, we're all about driving consumer revolutions, changing uh, the, the status quo, and, um, and try to help consumers uh, you know, have access to better options for themselves or for the planet. And, you know, honestly, I'm inspired on a daily basis by meeting with super driven entrepreneurs that pursue crazy dreams and demonstrate on a daily basis the, the power of, uh, of innovation. So, you know, for me, that led me really naturally to investing in, in consumer. Now, the, the, the biggest challenge uh, is for me to stay fit uh, with all the products that we try on a daily basis and all the food and beverage that we eat. But that's a, that's a separate topic, I'd say. <laughs> Of all the snack companies that are coming out and everything, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's. I'm, I'm sure to imagine so. And they show off all the different flavors, and you want to try all of them. It's terrible. It's funny because I've had investors come on the show that actually talk about, um, you know, the grocery store and how this is this like magical place, and it is a magical place, right? You see all the brands that are on shelf and and kind of. I kind of understand in terms of maybe some of the trends that are that are happening. Just looking looking closer at grocery store. Give us a little bit of background on on Verlevest, if you don't mind. 
after college, uh, I started my investment career uh, at uh, actually my career in investment banking uh, at a place called Lazard, first in Paris and then in New York. And there I got to work for a firm called Einazebusch InBev, AB InBev. It's you know, the largest beer company in the world. And they happened to be backed by the Belgian family that is at the origin of Verinvest. And through that experience, you know, I got to understand the, the family heritage of the group, the focus that ABI had on branding and marketing. And, um, and I got approached by someone at Verinvest 10 years ago. And being French, the US, I, I'm sure you didn't, you didn't recognize I was French, but let me, you know, let me uh, put that on the table. But you know, being French, the US-European connection was, for me, really unique. I love the entrepreneurial opportunity also to build an office uh, and the presence of Verinvest in the US. Uh, in 2012, we were two in an office without any window, AC or heat. So it was a very interesting experience. And in total, at Verinvest, we were seven investors. So I think it was a pretty unconventional uh, move, if you ask my, my family, to live in a super established bank uh, where I was really having a great time. But you know, after 10 years, I, I, I feel pretty proud of, uh, of what we've built you know, in uh, we have 10 people now uh, in the US, uh, in New York and Los Angeles. We're over 25 investors uh, globally. We've had a few you know, cool successes under our belt, like you know, our investments in, in Chewy.com, in uh, Oatly, in Pedego, Vitacoco, Genexa, Hintwater, etc. And you know, I think that we've been able to win in what is in the, the US the most competitive uh, market uh, in, uh, in consumer investment. Thanks to a few things. One is we've been around for 27 years, so we've we've acquired, I, I assume, some some experience in consumer. We have a super flexible capital base with uh, with our family. It's an evergreen structure. We don't need to return cash to our shareholders, so we can really align with the entrepreneurs for you know one year or 15 years. It doesn't matter to us as long as we take the time to build the right outcome for for all the stakeholders. And we we have a strong international presence. Uh, with boots on the ground that allows us to be relevant, uh, A, in capturing trends globally, but also help our entrepreneurs develop uh, internationally their businesses. That's that's really interesting. Congratulations on all your successes. Those are you know obviously incredible companies. But I think that it's also really interesting, your point about how you're able to be very, very uh, super flexible when it comes to what maybe uh, your returns are, when you actually have to you know engage in those types of returns and, and everything. When you look at a company, because I know you you invested in you know technology companies like Chewy.com, and then all the way to of course you know CPG brands like you know Oatly and Hint. How do you think about you know return profiles? We talk about it a lot on the show, but like for a technology company like Chewy.com, for example, it's very typically a very different return profile than like an Oatly or a Hint or you know of like CPG products. Like how or or, or is it not? I mean, how would you how do you kind of uh, think about it when you, when you think about a portfolio construction for you know maybe software intensive companies versus you know non software in, intensive uh, companies? So on that point, Mike, I'm happy to elaborate further. Candidly, we're first and foremost consumer investors, and so I would say that the tech component, the SaaS, etc., would be less of my would be less uh, my expertise. What I would say, uh, however, is that. When approaching a consumer investment, one needs to understand that you will never have the same, you know, hyperbole or, you know, uh, crazy growth potential in a super short amount of time because it takes time to build a brand. It takes time to build a presence, uh, on the shelf. It takes time to build trust with the consumers, et cetera, et cetera. And the big mistake to me that has had been happening over the last, uh, five, five, six years. Uh, has been to apply a venture capital mentality from the Silicon Valley. 
to consumer investment. I think that has led to tremendous inflation in the in the valuation environment, and as a result, putting increasing pressure on entrepreneurs to deliver a growth that candidly is very hard to achieve in consumer goods in a very short time frame. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. I feel like the term, you know, D2C brand, for example, it maybe implies that this is a whole new business model, a whole new type of business that maybe there is, you know, a software component to there, which really you're using, you know, software for distribution. It's not actually a software product. And so maybe Silicon Valley, you know, investors got really interested and attracted because, oh, maybe they're kind of, you know, software esque kind of companies, maybe should be valued like software type businesses when really they're not. It's just a new, you know, distribution channel for, um, for consumer brands. Yeah, it's just another channel that can be an amazing way for to get early adoption to, to help consumers discover the product in an easy way, even if they're far from a store that will carry the product, etc. Ultimately, at Brainvest, we believe in an omni-channel strategy. Uh, brands that have been started online will ultimately have to go offline. Brands that have started offline should think about increasing their reach uh, by going online, either through their own website or Amazon, etc., but we don't believe that a pure DTC brand will uh, be able to scale uh, at the right level uh, without an offline presence as well. How do you think when you're evaluating brands? You know, I mean, obviously you're very, very flexible, as you said, when it comes to you know the duration of that. You're you know you're in a company and and the amount of time that it maybe takes to generate a return. What is maybe the entry point that you invest in when it comes to a brand? And, and how do you evaluate brands overall? Like how do you think about brand equity that a brand is building up? Because it takes obviously a long time to build up that brand equity component. Yeah, the, the second part, honestly, you're, you're pointing probably at one of the trickiest part of our job. Which is to try and be able to sort what's a trend and what's a fad, you know. And as a firm, as I said, you know, we want to drive consumer revolutions over the long term rather than back a you know temporary fad and you know make some money through a quick turnaround. You know, make a two quick, a quick two x on a company by selling it at the right time. We do not like you know companies that are built to sell. So, as a result, we spend a tremendous amount of time looking you know for categories and businesses that are at uh, inflection point and spend probably way too many nights writing deep dives to understand sectors, subsectors, the winning brands within the subsectors, etc. Going extremely deep in the approach. Yeah. Ultimately, the core of our work is to, we are extremely focused on analyzing retail data, understanding consumer engagement with, uh, with a brand, understanding the social media following, the quality and the pattern of online sales, etc. We also have a network of, of advisors uh, and experts in, in different categories that are able to talk to distributors uh, and retailers to understand you know, how a brand is performing. And, and you know, I'd say that there is not one killer analysis that allows us to get it right, but it's more you know compilation of and combination of analysis that ultimately gives us the, the confidence in the quality of the growth trajectory of a brand. How do you also think about pride differentiation when you're analyzing CPG companies? How do you define it? Does there need to be pride differentiation in many cases? I mean, I'd certainly say that pride differentiation matters. At the beginning, at least, right? I mean, you, you need to stand for something. You need to offer a better alternative to what's currently on the shelf. Otherwise, why would a retailer even talk to you if it's just like a, a me too product without anything? So absolutely differentiated packaging, innovative ingredient list, uh, a unique taste profile. Those are things that are important. However, we need to remind ourselves that we are in consumer. We're not in the rocket ship industry, right? And so uh, barriers to entry are pretty low, ultimately. And so you need to 
build much more than you know than just a product differentiation. And that's why for us, ultimately, the only long-lasting barrier to entry is brand brand building. You know, if I take the example of um, of Pedego, which is uh, an investment we we made recently, they have amazing electric bikes. But ultimately, what is making Pedego so successful and so different? Its ability to gather a community, organize rides on weekends, uh, use the store as a meeting point for for people to grab a coffee and share their passion, serve, uh, you know, and offer an option for underserved communities and underserved population. And that, to me, is something that is much more important than uh, the color or the shape of the bike. That's one element. I think also more and more we see a requirement from consumers for brands to you know embrace a mission and have a, a positive impact you know either on people or the planet and what's obvious is that the brand mission has to be clear from the start of the journey in order for those elements to be authentic and so if i take the example of uh, uh, tony's chocolonni which is another investment we made out of europe which is a chocolate company that is trying to fight against uh, slavery in the supply chain, I don't know if you knew, but you know, 1.6 million kids work in the cocoa industry in Africa. And so that company defines itself as an impact company that happens to do chocolate. And so that can be another reverse. You know? And that can be, for me, a long-lasting uh, differentiation factor. No, and I, I really appreciate you sharing these examples um, in terms of what that a company at their early stages needs to sample something in order for to pique your interest. Like that must be the brand messaging has to be very, very clear. I appreciate that example that you gave about community. I know that community, the term, it's kind of a term that's really thrown out a lot there when it comes to brands. And it makes sense too, just from like a financial aspect. If you're able to develop a community, then especially given since you know Facebook ads are very expensive, you're able to generate um uh, revenue um, must more cost effectively and not have to maybe rely as much on, on customer acquisition costs since it's organic. What are some maybe community type metrics that you might look at that are interesting to you as you are evaluating you know, a, a brand or, or company? Yeah, it can go from pretty sophisticated slash numerical to more subtle elements. If I look at the numerical metrics, uh, with, for example, instead of looking at the total number of, uh, of followers on Instagram, I would look at the engagement rate. I would look, for example, at the number of, of uh, mentions on, on TikTok and the kind of organic videos that you can generate, etc. That's really on the numerical side. Then maybe we're a bit old school, but what we like to track is, you know, our signs of cult following. We find that way. And so the if I take the example of, uh, of Oatly, when we did the, the investment back in 2016 and we started the due diligence actually in 2015, we were amazed just to see how, you know, the cult following that the brand was having in music festivals. You know, there was a music festivals that Oatly was organizing around the post-mill generation and then managed to put together thousands of kids you know, that were here with the manifesto of we want to, you know, we want to build a brand against uh, the dairy industry. We want to build the post-meal generation. That, to me, first of all, was a bit odd. I mean, I don't know that you can mobilize, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know that I want to spend two weeks, one week of my summer, you know, necessarily as a, as a 16-year-old or 17-year-old, I was a mate. But, you know, that spoke to me about the strength of the brand, about the ability like this to mobilize your consumers, not necessarily, by the way, your consumers, just a part of the population. You always want to look at, Yes, numerical components like the following, like the, the, the number of reviews, the quality of the reviews, et cetera, et cetera. But also the, the more uh, intangible components like the festival I was mentioning for Oakley. 
I love the fact that you brought up Oatly because I remember reading an article about how how they approached the United States. It wasn't just hey, let's try to get into grocery and retail. It was hey, let's actually try to go you know on prem. Which you think about on prem, you think of alcohol, but in this case, it was it was coffee shops, right? And so they were actually going into coffee shops and generating that demand. I remember one of my buddies telling me like he like he like would go to his coffee shop just because they have Oatly there and he couldn't find it in stores. It was this like really cool you know brand that you couldn't find in stores because that was like their their strategy from the very beginning. How do you also think about like kind of, since I always just think about Oatly when it comes to a pretty unique distribution, how they approach distribution, but like, are there other examples that you have or, or when you look for companies? Because I know we've talked a little bit about product differentiation. How do you feel thinking about like distribution differentiation, especially if a brand is coming from maybe being an online success and their approach to, you know, omnichannel and retail? Going back to what we discussed earlier, I think it's important for a brand to understand what, you know, why a retailer is going to take shelf away from an existing brand, an existing product, and put your brand instead. And so it's important for me, for those online brands, to go back to what made them successful, highlight those to retailers, and then find one or two retail partners at the beginning. I know we always say go deep, not, 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 not wide. And so pick one or two retailers with who you're going to be able, with which you're going to be able to build a case study of success. For example, pick a regional chain, maybe the natural channel at the beginning, you know, 50, 100, 200 stores, and focus a lot of, you know, spend a lot of time making that launch a success. Once you have that, you can go to other retailers and tell them, look, you know, Give us a chance. Look at once you put us on the shelf with that assortment at that price point, et cetera, et cetera, things that you'll have been able to test with your initial partner. You'll have created this case study of success that then you can try to replicate with other retailers. That to me is, is absolutely critical. And so for those online players, I, I always advise them to spend a lot of time finding the ideal first partner that will be an amazing supporter and that will be patient enough to create this case study of success that you will then bring to the world. Online brands, at the end of the day, get quite a bit of visibility sometimes. And so they're going to get approaches from a bunch of retailers that are also under pressure to bring those online brands on in their stores. And so a bunch of brands, even if they're pretty small, are going to receive a bunch of approaches from different retailers. And we always remind the brands you know, of the power of saying no. You'd much rather focus on one or two partners Again, it can be a regional partner, it can be you know a national partner, but that is pretty specific in its uh, in its value proposition, etc. And and saying no to others because if you you know it can be very tempting to be launching in ten thousand dollars the first year, but then if you're collecting dusts, it's very complicated to go back to those retailers and ask for a second chance. So we always advise brands to try and go you know take it slow. And uh, and uh, say no, and then uh, expand as time as time goes by. With all this being said, when does it make sense for a brand to think about going into retail and taking that next step and and developing an omnichannel strategy? I'm sure this is something that you think about a lot because you're investing in a lot of digital brands. But the bet is not just hey, let's scale your online e-commerce business. We want to take you in retail and 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 actually have you be in source. Absolutely, I think here it's always important to take a proactive approach. The, the worst thing that you can do is to you know, sell online, start to see a slowdown in revenue, start to see uh, an increase in CAC, a reduction in the, in the conversion rate, etc., etc., and go you know, kind of as a desperate measure, turn into the offline channel and say, okay, can, can we make it work? 
because at that moment you don't have the time, you don't have the leverage, you don't necessarily have the pricing power that you need in order to, to grow sustainably offline. So think early about your move from online to offline, make it complementary, and hopefully you know both you know online and offline will feed off each other. If I take the example of a hint water, so they actually started offline, then they built an amazing presence online. But what we love to see is that the consumer online was then turning back to the offline channel for the daily purchase, the discovery of new of new flavors, and the daily, you know, the, the pantry load that, that they wanted to do. And so the we could acquire a customer online, but then they would move offline, and sometimes offline consumers were interested in, in buying online. But you want to see that virtuous circle. The worst thing is my online story is starting to fade away. Let me go offline to try and you know, find my salvation there. And, and then, you know, it's probably too late. Uh, you also want to think very carefully about the way you build your unit economics to make it work in an offline environment because it's completely different, obviously, uh, from an online environment. Yeah, I remember chatting with John Sebastiani from Cinema Brands who was saying that the hard part of analyzing digital brands is, of course, you have to have the question of, will this work in retail? If that is a you know check mark, obviously then it piques your interest to invest. But also, like, does the actual unit economics work too? Um, and a lot of times when you're starting out online, you might not think about the retail side because also in many cases some of the entrepreneurs just don't have that experience of actually growing a brand retail, so they don't actually know you know what those like unit economics actually are to make you know a really great solid wholesale business. Yes, and there are a lot of buckets of costs that you ignore. Uh, online that unfortunately, you know, a distributor is going to cost you something. Merchandising is going to cost you something. That Those are all elements that you absolutely need to take into account when thinking about your price point and your ultimate margin profile and profit pool. In your diligence process and when you're evaluating brands, what are signs that a premium product, I mean, I know that a lot of your investments are in premium, better for you products, what are signs that those could actually achieve mass adoption? That's the opportunity, right? How do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. For a premium product, the tricky part is to be able to strike a balance between appealing to early adopters, you know, creating that case study of success with a cult following base, etc., without being seen as you know, out of touch with the general population. In other words, it's, you know, it's amazing to be able to sell tons of products at a local farmer's market in Brooklyn, but you, know, you want to see an interest from a slightly more diverse population in order to think about a mass adoption. So I think there are you know, a lot of tools that allow you to test that mass adoption potential. Yeah, I think you start with the attributes of the product, price points, convenience, etc. But we're also monitoring things like social media following outside of its core geography and to see if you know you, you start to see early signs of people asking for the product where can i get it can't wait for it to arrive in my town etc cetera, etc cetera. and that allows you to get some signs of, uh, of adoption of course then you have more sophisticated tools with uh, you know brand studies etc and and testing you know uh, appetite from potential consumers but yes you you want to make sure that that you see early signs of, of interest from broader population. What does a successful outcome look like for you? I mean, we talk about this a lot, and I think this is kind of going back to your earlier point about maybe when software Silicon Valley investors were invested in CPG, hoping maybe for you know billion type um, exits. When really those are kind of few and far between when it comes to CPG. What to you like is success from a financial fund perspective? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I was going to say that we are a bit of a of a strange animal in the world of investment. You know, we are a family-backed holding company. 
And so success to us is, is not only measured by, you know, financial results. It is absolutely. Um, but, you know, when we, our philosophy is, is really to try and, and look at a big category that has a fundamental problem. You know, the product or the service that, that we back should then create a, a switching moment where consumers move to a more sustainable alternative. And so for us, success, success is when we identify one of these companies and take it to a large international mainstream audience. That's really what success is. Typically, that will translate in a large company that has managed to develop its revenue base in its home country, but also on a global scale, that has managed to expand its manufacturing footprint and expand the profit pool, and, and as a result, be a, a company that will be... Uh, that will have an appeal either to a strategic player or to the to the public markets, as we've seen over the last two years. It's been a pretty common route for uh, many CPG companies. When do you think about large markets and you think about you know some of the trends that's been happening in consumer? I mean, what trends specifically are you kind of most excited about? You know, today that maybe are still nascent that you think could become large, or they're already large, but you still think that there's opportunities for for more brands to be. I think there's an overarching theme for us, we, and that goes across categories. I mean, I could spend hours going through each, again, I, I mentioned the, the deep dives that we do, so I could, I, I, you know, if you have four hours, I'll, I'll walk you through the, the categories, subcategories, sub-subcategories that we're particularly interested in. But if I want to take a step back, I think a, a theme that, we, that we've been particularly interested in over the last few years is really the David versus Goliath. We, we like to... Again, always going back to driving consumer revolutions, we believe that consumers are going to ask more and more of brands to have a mission that is clear, that is authentic, and that is trying to improve the status quo. By saying that, whether you are in the food and beverage, in the pet food, in the beauty and personal care, in the durable goods, sporting goods, mattress industry, you'll always find entrepreneurs that are trying to innovate in order to provide a better alternative. And that is something that to us is, is key. And that is the, the main focus on the, uh, of the fund. And that translates, as I said, in many different categories. And you can find that in a lot of different subsegments. But that's the trend that we're interested in backing. That makes sense. Because, I mean, also maybe the entrepreneur's job, right, to prove to you in some way that this is actually a trend, right? That this is actually there too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, we, we typically, when we talk to an entrepreneur and when we entertain discussions with an entrepreneur, it's because we're convinced already about trend dynamics. So we've done a bit of homework. Uh, of course, then through the dialogue, we seek reinforcement of that conviction. And through that dialogue, we also understand if the entrepreneur is here to quickly take advantage of that trend or is fundamentally motivated to drive that, that, that evolution over the long term. And we'll be interested in the latter, not, not the former. We want people that you know, try to create that, you know, create or serve the wave that they've created, basically. That, that, those are the ones that are more exciting. What were some of your learnings during this um, you know, past two years during COVID? Has this at all, um, for maybe some of your thesis or, or some of the trends that you're focused on, has this kind of made you more accepting to them or, or maybe you now maybe have shifted towards um, something different or like just would love to kind of hear like your learnings over like the past two years as, as we kind of come out of this period? The, the first thing I'd say is it's made our 
job extremely tricky because a lot of a lot of uh, sell trends have been accelerated by COVID. And as an investor, we've had to be extremely careful to understand the companies that were experiencing a COVID bump versus the one that were experiencing a, a COVID acceleration. You know, you see a few categories that basically took advantage of this unique set of circumstances to have a, a positive impact on their business, but not necessarily a long-lasting one. And over the last, you know, when we looked at businesses until early 2022, you still had a lot of business models where it was very unclear whether or not the sales trajectory that that experience was going to be sustainable or not. So a lot of our time has been spent trying to understand, and, you know, let me take maybe the example of Pedego once more. Pedego as a company has experienced a pretty amazing growth over the last three years driven by people spending more time at home, people having more time to spend, to be outside with a family, etc. And so that drove an interest in, you know, uh, purchasing an e-bike. You could say, okay, maybe that was a COVID bump. But for us, we looked at the adoption rates of e-bikes in Europe that represent, you know, over 40% for in a country like Netherlands, for example. And we compared that to the penetration in the US when it was 2%. And honestly, after you understand those two numbers, for me, you rest your case, right? Even if the U.S. will never reach 50% of the penetration that you experience in the Netherlands, you still have a market that can increase 10x uh, from where it is today. And so for us, yes, there was a massive acceleration through COVID, but that has allowed consumers to be aware of the product. Uh, the awareness was extremely low before COVID. And so now we think that there is actually a very positive uh, tailwind that is going to last for the next 10 years. And you see that also through government support, uh, et cetera, you know, bike lanes that are being uh, uh, built all over the country, et cetera, et cetera. I appreciate that e-bike example because, you know, you really do, for some categories, as you said, it really mass accelerated them. And you have to think as we kind of come out of this period, will that still be the case? Was this, you know, as part of you know this past two year period, and can they continue to grow at that rate, or even if they can't grow that rate, can they grow to what it needs to take in order to be you know a pretty big business to uh, to pique your interest? How do you also think of about like the exit environment during you know these times as well as the past two years? You know, I think that the past few years, you know, SPACs have, for example, been very very popular, and and many of them haven't really quite panned out um, the way that we'd hope in the in the public markets, do you think that like strategics are in like better positioned than they maybe were uh, previously? Um, I mean, that right now the like, public markets are not too well at all. But um, do you think that that this is like a great you know position to be in if you were a potential strategic, for example? I think the last two years have been tough for strategics because they were faced, you know, SPAC or, or traditional IPOs. They were fi- faced with a public market that was willing to underwrite, you know, two to three years of growth. And so many companies in 2021 did not IPO on the 2021 or 2022 revenue, but 2023 and 2024. A strategic will have a harder time underwriting this or has, has had a harder time underwriting this. Now that the public markets are effectively shut, um, you're right to mention that you know, some SPACs are um, experiencing difficult times. The strategics are sharpening their pencils, uh, as they should. They're going to have amazing opportunities, both on the private and on the public side. Many companies went public that were not necessarily meant to go public or that should not have necessarily went public. They're now faced with a 
market-based stuff with an investor base that is uh, expecting a lot from them. Whether you you beat or you miss, it feels that you know <laughs> the pulse is not there on the share price at the moment. And so, strategics are obviously going to be able to to benefit from this, especially in a, you know in the consumer world where many. Uh, strategics are based on you know, take most of their revenue from staple consumers, staple goods, and so as a result, we will not suffer as much from a revenue standpoint, from a top line standpoint, and they will be able to pass through most of the inflation to consumers. So the the margins will not suffer as much. That will lead to higher or similar cash generation as before, and as a result, uh, an opportunity to to acquire a few businesses. Absolutely. I really appreciate you sharing your perspective on that. I certainly agree that this is maybe a position right now where strategic are, are in a position of strength currently. What's one thing you would change about maybe the perception of investing in consumer brands? I, I want to go back to what I, you know, what we talked about earlier. I think over the last three, four years, there's been just an influx of capital from the tech industry that has clearly been unhealthy. In many ways, for investors, because that has you know, led to pretty impressive uh, valuation increases, but also for entrepreneurs, because that has created, according to me, a necessary pressure on them to you know give them an impression that growth at all costs was absolutely necessary. Uh, it didn't necessarily give them the time to build the right foundation, the right unit economics, and as a result, created you know board dynamics and situation for companies. That were very uncomfortable. So my hope is that I mean, maybe the silver lining of this uh, of the situation that we're currently in is that things will you know come back a little bit more to a more quote unquote normal environment, which will you know allow each side to be to be happy and will also provide the required amount of time for entrepreneurs to always think strategically and not cut corners to 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 get the growth that was expected of them in the future in the in the past what's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally you know my life is uh filled with nonfiction and hbs case studies etc so when i you know when i finally get to you know, sit down at night and read. You know, I'm only excited about fiction, actually. And, you know, I like to dream of, 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 of big destinies. And so I'm particularly, you know, I, I love the, the writers of the 19th century and, and early part of the 20th century. Uh, you know, when I think of a Dostoevsky, a, uh, Joseph Kessel, a Céline, a, uh, Victor Hugo, which, uh, you know, those are, you know, writers that have been able to to create universe, a universe that really moved me and, and characters that are typically larger than life, you know, and they inspire me to do big thing with my life. Kind of, you know, the, the same way that entrepreneurs inspire me on a daily basis to, you know, to get out of my, of my, of my comfort zone and, and try to pursue big dreams. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that because I'm very contrarian. A lot of people that come on usually say business books or nonfiction books. And so um, I really appreciate you um, mentioning those authors. Let's dream a bit. Yeah, let's dream let's a bit. Dream exactly. A bit. Exactly. <laughs> hey, it's consumer. We, get, we, we got a dream, right? So my final question to you is, what's maybe one piece of advice that you have for founders? Well, you know, uh, a few things. First of all, uh, I want to say that. I, I do this job because I fundamentally admire entrepreneurs and I wish I was an entrepreneur myself. Uh, but since I'm not, the next best thing for me was investing in entrepreneurs. Uh, so first of all, I, I just want to say that anyone that is today pursuing the dream of you know, getting out there 
um, you know, creating a product, experiencing the the fury of of this uh, you know of this uh, of this environment uh, deserves a lot of respect. To me, the, the the one piece of advice that I'd like to give is very early on try to understand what differentiates you, not necessarily as a product, but as a brand. What do you want to stand for? What will be the the red line that we'll never cross? And what you believe will have a positive impact on on the future, on your kids. By doing so, and by putting that, you, know, you should put it on the wall in your in your office uh, and staying true to it. You will build the authentic link that is the most important thing for me in order to create you know a strong bond with a consumer, and that will, as a result, allow you to survive many bad times. That will allow you to survive knockoff competition. That will allow you to survive. You know, a, a bad there or a bad meeting with a retailer because ultimately you know what you stand for and you know that consumers love you for that element. So, yeah, maybe it's a bit cliche, but to me it's very important to try and define an authentic mission that you will stay uh, true to uh, during the life, life of your entrepreneur journey. Yeah, and I'd finally say one thing, Mike, is a good brand, a good entrepreneur, even in tough times, will have access to capital. And as a result, as an entrepreneur, I would spend a tremendous amount of time diligencing the capital partner that you're talking to. I want to make sure that you're actually going to get something out of them, real value, not just what they put on a website, but you know, can they provide you with case studies? Can they introduce you to you know, the, the other CEOs that they've worked with, etc.? Because you, you owe it to yourself uh, and also to your employees and to, the, to, to your brand to partner with the, with the best or, or the most you know, complementary uh, investor and people. And honestly, the worst thing that you could do is rush through a process like going to Las Vegas, getting married, and the next day be like, wow, what did I do? You know, because an investor is someone you're going to spend you know, quite a bit of time uh, over the next five, six years. And you, know, you want to be with someone you'll be, uh, you'll be happy with. Totally, totally. I completely agree. Clement, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for your time again. This is, this is really great. I had a great time. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. And there you have it. It was terrific chatting with Clement. I hope you all enjoyed. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>